Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Ashton, and today I'm here with Sharon. Sharon, explain the our topic for today. Today we're going to talk about hell. And tell me, tell me, why did this one grab you? I think it's important to talk about hell um, because our understanding of the afterlife shapes our understanding of our current life. And that's kind of my take, is that this doctrine, and when we say hell, of course, what are we talking about? And, and so clearly there's the word Gehenna, there's the word Tartarus, there's the word Hades, that you've got all these various terms, but actually when we use the modern word, we're it's almost like they're all-encompassing and in no way distinguishing between those doctrines. And so once you narrow it down, well, Hades is actually the place of the dead, and Gehenna, or the lake of fire, are usually what we associate with the doctrine. And so once you, you separate out the extraneous stuff from what pertains, then what we're really talking about when most people think of hell is eternal conscious torturous existence. I think we can just say up front that, first of all, there is no doctrine in the New Testament. There's no verse. There's no place. We'll cover, we can touch upon maybe the one place in Matthew, but we can. there's maybe three that people will reference, but again, they're, they're kind of extraneous. But maybe what, you know, I'm never quite sure how to approach it, but clearly if you're talking about this understanding it's going to influence everything. It is such a weighty topic that this then becomes the focus of salvation. Why did Christ die? Once you posit this doctrine, then he will have died to save us from this eternal torturous existence. The problem is there's nowhere in the New Testament that you can correlate Christ saving us from Gehenna or saving us from the lake of fire. I suppose you could extrapolate that, but then in saying that, what you're actually doing is obscuring the New Testament doctrine, which is Christ saves us, not from the effects of sin, but from sin itself. Well, a problem, too, is that people, sure, there's the phrase, he died so I don't have to, and in a sense, that is true that Christ defeated death, but the issue is people don't actually believe that Christ defeated death, because the picture that we get that we are given and that we also give is not so much being death being defeated but it's more of being sent to hell and it's more of a judgment type of thing it just skews everything it just makes of christianity something that it makes it a different religion is the way that i would put it Certainly it changes up your view of not just redemption, but even of God. And maybe it doesn't matter. Are you talking about predestination or if you're talking about free will? I'll come to that here. But of course, uh, uh, I think people's understanding of who God is, is skewed by this. The statement David Bentley Hartz puts it this way, that once you posit this doctrine, you render equivocal. That is that you in some way undo the meaning of the entire doctrine of, uh, or, or theology or vocabulary of the New Testament. He says it reduces all theological language 
to vacuity, for none of it can be trusted. The system in the end is one devoid of logical or semantic content. What he's saying, oh, you can still use the language of love, of redemption, you know, but all of those words are going to take on a very different meaning, and his point is they're really emptied of meaning, because if God is a loving God, well, that's going to mean something very different if he's eternally angry. Right. And it's almost a scarcity mentality that there isn't enough grace, there isn't enough love. There has to be clear winners, clear losers, clear in and clear out. Yeah. And we can come to that, you know, in the, actually I'm doing a class in Romans or preparing a class. And the discussion there, you know, that he's prepared vessels of wrath, that may be the one doctrine. Boy, if you take that as meaning that God created some people so that he could torture them forever and ever, then you've got a really skewed view of God. And of course, that's not what Paul's saying in that passage. So I think the doctrine, it poses endless problems. You had some uh, comments there. Who is it, Richard Rohr, that you're reading? So in the Apostles' Creed, it states that Jesus, and I'm reading from Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, Um, the chapter called The Resurrection Journey, and he says that uh, Jesus descended into hell. Well, that's what the Apostle Creed says. The um, implications of that is that there surely is one. But what Richard Rohr argues is that he went there to liberate and undo hell, similar to what he did in the temple, but we seldom read it in that way. I don't really know what I've ever thought of that passage. It's like, well, look. Okay, descended into hell, or yeah, first Peter, first Peter, and then Ephesians four. Okay, yeah, the, there are many ways to read the first Peter passage. The Catholic reading is it literally is a descending into hell, but the the problem with that is, and of course, how you line up. Well, it's actually if hell is a post judgment category, then Christ can't have at his death descended into a category that is post judgment. If you take it as the place of the dead, well, that's not hell. That's something different than hell. Some people take it as uh, a reference back to Noah. So the passage is already obscure. But in the Apostles' Creed or in the in a, in a right. Catholic understanding, they do take it that Christ went to hell. Right, and it doesn't necessarily say hell in itself in those two passages, from what I understand. But I like that reading of it. That maybe a place to start just going through the various doctrines is that the word you know that we get for e- eternal the word is age. If you take the Old Testament picture of age or ion or olam that get translated as eternal or everlasting, well, the Aaronic priesthood, Solomon's temple, Jonah in the whale are all connected to this word. That is that olam or Aeon, or age, cannot mean everlasting in those instances, and so clearly the word cannot mean that uh, in some places, and probably doesn't mean that in many places, that you have to look at the context and to, to automatically read it as everlasting, is to miss the fact that it is referring to things with a definite beginning and end. And so you can look at the punishment passages that are describing, you know, they're sent to that coming age. One way of reading that is not to as an infinite or ongoing category, but as the, the word is read elsewhere. 
so that for the, the key passage probably for infinite you know, eternal conscious punishment would be Matthew 25, 43 to 46. And at the end of that, in verse 46, uh, I tell you inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, neither did you do it to me. And these will go on to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. And so the concept here in some translations, not actually it's not a majority of translations, this is where the, the notion of an eternal torturous existence might be read. It's the only place in the entire Bible where we find the two words brought together, that is eternal or aeon and punishment. Uh, maybe there's over a dozen English translations and they, which do not contain the concept of eternal punishment or, in, in fact, uh, any concept like that. And so the, you know, Dante's Inferno was Satan presiding over a continual kingdom. If you were going to do it, that would be the passage. But even that passage, it just depends completely on reading into it, a kind of eisegesis. Right. So the, the Greek for everlasting, maybe if you just read that as chastening, a chastening of that age, it could be, you know, the Greek word, if you just look it up in uh, Kittles, it just means chastening, correction, cut off. There's the picture of the pruning of a tree. Then the reason you prune a tree is not to destroy the tree, but to bring health to the tree. The word came to mean punishment of any kind in, uh, historically, but the only use of the noun in the New Testament is interestingly in 1 John 4.18, and it does not refer to retributive punishment, but to suffering, the suffering someone experiences of fear. So there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Tell me what Richard Rohr says about a Christianity in which you come to it out of fear. If you are frightened into God, it is never the true God that you meet. If you are loved into God, you meet a God worthy of both Jesus and Christ. How you get there is where you arrive. Which seems to agree with John's point. If your entire religion is based on fear and it just stays there, that in some way you're never going to come to the truth of love. Eternal, everlasting, maybe the better rendering is they endure for an age with a definite beginning and end. In Scripture there is the punishment unto that age. There's several ages. There's Matthew, the coming age. There's the present wicked age. It's the same word that we get translated. And there is the conclusion of the age in Matthew 13. To, to depict this as necessarily eternal and infinite is just going to excuse all of these passages. It just cannot mean that in those sections. And so probably doesn't mean that in the one passage at Matthew 28 where the two words are pictured together. So once you say that, well, the one passage where you have age and punishment brought together Matthew 28, I don't think it means that. Even if it did, let's say that my understanding of that is completely wrong. We're down to one passage already where the two words are brought together. And of course, the word may mean, 
annihilation and and very often there or the idea of the the future age that it it may not be an eternal torturous thing annihilation is the picture that you get predominantly in the old testament that death is pictured you know the uh, complete coming to nothing that they're returning to dust and in the new testament you get Things like passages like 1 Corinthians, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The destroy there doesn't mean you're going to, in some way, the temple is the temple of the body. It doesn't, it doesn't survive. And so the word destroy, to, to lay waste, to undo, to be brought to nothing, passage uh, in Second. Peter, I think it is, but these are natural beasts made to be taken and destroyed. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. And that's the way that Jesus often speaks of the final punishment as a kind of annihilation. The burning of chaff or brambles in ovens, the final destruction, he says, of the body and soul. In, you know, in the, the valley of Hinnom is actually where we get the word Gehenna. It's a, an actual geographical location that they're all familiar with and it was where the garbage was burned and they would burn bodies there too and so uh, it's not a place of survival the apocalypse of John of course there's the lake of fire that will totally consume the wicked it would consume the wicked in the same way that it would destroy death so you don't want death surviving the notion of survival is completely lacking now, this may all be very unconvincing. Once you're convinced of this doctrine, it's almost like you're hell-bent on right. reading it into the New Testament. What has been your experience with the doctrine? I think just whenever you start to experience um, a life of abundance, and what I mean by that is the richness of like community, the richness of just life in and of itself, these things just don't correlate with the lived experiences doctrine of hell basically of this internalized cultural understanding that we're trying to be saved from a terrible afterlife and we're trying to escape some terrible afterlife but then you live your life and you think well actually these people they're making my life hell <laughs> you know and i before whenever i was a teenager and in a terrible place in life, you know, I always said, well, I would rather go to hell than live this life, you know, because it's pretty terrible. I don't know what could get much worse. And could it be, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit baffled by this doctrine, why people are so committed to it. You know, the original lie in the, in the Old Testament is that you won't die very often attached to eternal torturous existence is the kind of innate immortality of the soul, which is just not a biblical doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is, the, the, if you believe that people, as I had a professor said, well, we're all little pieces of God. We're all innately immortal. That's not Christianity. That's, that's a pagan right. notion. And I think many people have a pagan notion of what it means to, to be a human being. Freud talks about that in the human unconscious, there is no mortality. Hmm. There is no death. That is, that the way that we think of ourselves is like that kind of Greek pagan understanding. 
And I think well, historically what has happened is that's been fused with the New Testament idea, but of course, or with the, with the Scripture. But of course, in the biblical picture, we're completely dependent upon God for life. That's the whole point of salvation, is that there is life in God and there is not life apart from God. Right, and that there is an abundance, not necessarily just for ourselves, but for all. Because if there's only abundance for yourself, that's not actually abundance, it's scarcity. And I think that's a huge issue with this uh, mentality that is so seeped into our church and our culture is that there is such a scarcity and that there's not enough for for everyone that not really everyone is welcome because well we can't have a homeless person or we can't have the black person or we can't have the lower income family be a part of this because well they don't contribute enough there's not enough for them because they're not enough for us and it's this weird which is yeah that's which i might uh, be making connections that aren't actually there but oh i think in the health and wealth gospel that's what you get is that some people are obviously blessed you know if you got money and and you've got a big house isn't god blessing you and that isn't that a sign that you're a part of the elect right and if you if you don't have those things and you're you're not part of the elect you know the health and wealth gospel is not really a huge departure from just Calvinism. The whole idea is that there are an elect few, and the elect few are they're marked by God's blessing, and that came very much. You know, this is uh, uh, the the idea of the the rise of the spirit of capitalism in uh, who is it Weber that talks about that. No, I I think that that is the part of it that. What is missing, and this is the term, the, the term in the New Testament uh, is pleroma, a fullness. The, it, it is, you know, the, when the fullness of all people are brought in. There is the concept of a narrow way, but the narrow way in Christ is not narrow in the sense that, oh, it's just a very select few. No, the narrow way is going to have an, a universal impact. And so I think that's what confuses people, is there. There is the discussion of a narrow way, and there is the discussion of a universal cosmic salvation. How do you bring those two things together? And so I think there's two Christianities. One maybe focuses on the universality without the focus on the specificity of Christ. The other imagines that it's only a very few who get it, but they picture it as future and not connected to a cosmic redemption. I know in a Catholic understanding, which I don't agree with, the idea of a purgatory. Right. But there is, I think, that actually purgatory is a, uh, if you take it, remove it from the concept of, you know, infants or uh, people going to purgatory in a temporary, you know, that they're going to be purified there. There are passages like 1 Corinthians 3 that talk about a testing or purging. You know, the picture there, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid in Christ Jesus. And then what you build on that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, if any man's work is burned up, it's not talking about the man. It's not talking about the person. It's talking about their work. It says he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And so there are passages in the New Testament 
that talk about a kind of purging, uh, a kind of purification. And certainly that's a, I mean, I think the purging that is being talked about there in 1 Corinthians 3 is a present tense. I mean, isn't that what life is? That we go through a kind of testing. And, and when you take the word that we get the word torture from, you know, we're translating that word. But actually the word, if originally applied, again, this is, I'm just reading from uh, Kittle here, that the inspector of coins tortured the coins. Of course, he can't have tortured the coins. He right. tests them. He puts them uh, to the test to see uh, the quality of metal. And that's certainly the picture in uh, the First Corinthians 3 passage, that in some way this testing or this torturing proves the genuineness. Ironically, that may be where we get in the Inquisition. <laughs> People were put on the rack to test the truth. You know, they, then they're going to tell the truth. Right. But hopefully, the, I, I don't think that that's the sort of proving or testing or punishing that's there that's true. As we're sitting here talking about this, uh, I don't know, this might be way too far-fetched, but like an analogy or a metaphor that's like picturing in my brain is of like a, like a Goodwill or like a garage sale or something where there's all these pieces of like furniture and silverware and plates and all of the things you see and they're not what they once were. They've been tarnished, they've been damaged, they've been aged. Most of the time what we do is we just throw it to a dump, but every now and then sometimes people will come and take them and restore them back to their original health, their original purpose, their original beauty in a restorative type of way. And so what I'm picturing in my head is that kind of image of where in that process of restoring there are certain aspects that are lost of the piece, but in the end the piece is still the piece and it is restored. And perhaps maybe that is similar to what it might be like. We're all, in a sense, restored. And there is, yes, a loss. And perhaps a suffering that comes with that loss. Because loss is never easy. Even if it's something that's toxic. Think of, you know, abusive relationships. When a person gets out of one, there's still that loss. And though they are on the process to becoming better they still grieve the loss of their significant other. You know, there is a sense of loss, but there is the eventual restoration where the original goodness is restored. I don't know, that might be too far away. Oh, no, I think that's, that in the, certainly that's the New Testament picture, that uh, that's the story of the prodigal son. Well, he's restored to his father only after he's feeding the pigs and eating the pods. That, right. The, even the pigs wouldn't eat. And there is a huge loss in this, you know, the prodigal son's life. Like, it's not like that's a great journey to get there. The loss of having to walk back and come home, you know? Yeah. And what, and what you see there, you know, the story of the prodigal son. The son is brought back. He's welcomed back into the waiting arms of the father. Not to put too much weight on that. That is, but I think that what happens in, a, in the doctrine of eternal torturous existence, that part of the skewing is that the, the cross then becomes the means that God 
you know, I had a professor that said, well, Christ experienced eternal torturous hell on the cross as if that's the punishment that had to be paid in order for God to be able to, in other words, that in some way that's the, the legal requirement. That is, first of all, there's just nowhere that you're going to find that in the New Testament. I suppose that's a logical extrapolation once you posit the doctrine. But the problem is that if there are still people that are suffering in hell forever and ever, it puts the love of God and the wrath of God on an equal plane. Right. Which is, again, just not, you know, the in the Old Testament, in Psalms 35, his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night. There's your suffering. There's your pain. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Psalms 103.9. Praise the Lord. Give thanks. He is good. His love endures forever. But nowhere does it say in the Bible that God's anger is on a continuum with his love. His anger is only but for a moment. And so, again, this skews who God is, that God in some way is, has an infinite anger problem. I think it's the keystone to a Gnostic or pagan sort of Christianity in which human rebellion and divine wrath are infinite categories. And man then is forever, you know, is it possible that human beings be forever in rebellion and God eternally angry? I just think that sort of God is evil. It's certainly not the God of the Bible. It's not the God portrayed in the story of the prodigal son or anywhere else, I don't think. Right. Well, and kind of going back to the prodigal son, which is somewhat related, is, um, you know, there's the older brother as well. And I think if we're going to be talking about hell and eternal punishment, whatever, we view life much more like the older son because we are the ones seeing it. Well, there's not, where's my party? Yeah. And we feel like as if we are being robbed if other people have life. But that's not how God or life works. That's not how grace works. It's not, it's not oh, well, there's not enough for everyone. Well, yeah, if you're in the position of the older son, you'd like to see that boy uh, suffer a little more. Right. <laughs> yeah, and you want to hoard the feast. You want to hoard the party. You want to hoard the fatted calf for yourself. And whenever we have this hoarding mentality, it hurts not only others, but it hurts ourselves because then we miss out on the actual presence of God because we can't enjoy the celebration. We can't appreciate the younger son. Right. Yeah. And we can't, we can't share in people's joys. We can't share in their suffering. And that is what life together is. And what we talk about a lot, you know, is that life together is life in and of itself. That apart from each other, we don't really have much. Uh, yeah. The hell, it would be uh, exclusion. It is alienation. That's why it's... That's why salvation is depicted as reconciliation. 
that it is being brought back into the family of God, in the, literally in the story of the prodigal son, being brought back into relationship. And so I guess, yeah, what you're saying there, that it is, it is possible, you know, the older son's still there in the family, but he's not enjoying that family. Right, he's not actually a part of the family because he refuses and is incapable, a little bit of, he is incapable of being present because he is so concerned with not a restorative justice, but a punitive yeah. justice. Which just skews, I, you know, there's so many passages that get misread. Once you, I mean, this, this is a heavy thing that once you put it into the New Testament, then every time you've come up with the word, I'm thinking here in chapter 8 of Romans, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the condemnation that he's describing there? Well, actually, he's just described it. If you think it's hell, in other words, if you read eternal torturous existence as the condemnation in Romans 8, what you're missing is what he's actually saying. And that is what he's just described in Romans 7. The condemnation is being condemned to the alienation, the separation. It becomes to define each of us individually, that we're not only separated from God, but even within ourselves, there's this agonistic struggle. Ironically, again, you know, in a certain Christianity, in a kind of, it tends to be a Calvinist Christianity, they're going to read what Paul is describing as condemnation, as if that's the normal Christian life. So what we should really be afraid of is not hell, but it's isolation. It's being left alone, which we were talking about uh, the other week when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 13, right, the love chapter, mm -hmm. where isolation and shame, that's, that's what's really terrible. And unfortunately, that's what most people experience on a micro level every day. So we're expecting some big, like, over-the-top type of thing whenever in reality... Hell is an everyday type of micro-suffering whenever we're separated from those around us. Well, hell could be more than just that. But that is a type of hell, being separate from others and being separate from God by this worldview that is so harsh. No, I think that's right. That, that, it, that your vision of God is such that he creates this place. And then your normative vision of, of kindness and goodness, I think, is skewed by it. Certainly, you know, and, and then with the shift in understanding what salvation is, you know, what is the, you're, you're just missing the New Testament. What's the New Testament about? What are you saved from? Well, you're not saved from hell. That's, that's not the image in the New Testament. You're saved from sin and death. You're not saved from the effects of sin. You're saved from the thing itself. What is the thing itself? It is this separation. It is this alienation. In a way, if you understand the lake of fire, what is destroyed in the lake of fire? Death itself. Hades itself is destroyed. That's the picture in Revelation. Part of God's redemptive plan is an undoing of any category that stands over and against his love. That his love is universal. It's all-embracing. The hell is actually part of the good news understood correctly because God is going to destroy 
alienation, isolation, suffering, torture. Would it be possible that every tear would be wiped away and that we could be living in joyous rapture if we know that our relatives, our loved ones are suffering forever and ever? Now, this, this is an interesting point. Calvin said, oh, well, you know, part of what you're going to see, this is an acknowledgement of God's divine sovereignty. That's his focus throughout. And so the predestination of some who are saved and some who are damned is going to depend upon watching your loved ones. Luther actually pictured this, your loved ones roasting in hell forever and ever. You'll just rejoice in that because you know God is sovereign. Boy, that's a strange sort of rejoicing and right. a strange God. Yeah, I went to a funeral, you know, for my grandfather, and the service was just, you know, everybody else loved it, but I was just sitting there just kind of miserable through it. Not not the part where we were remembering and celebrating the life of my grandfather, but just the sermon was all about how, well, some people are in and some people are out, and we all know buff he's in and we can celebrate and if you're not a part of the end well you'll never see him again but if you are well ah, we have so much to rejoice about and that just over and over and over in different ways and i'm just thinking is that what this is about hmm. is yeah you know when you think about what a human being is we we are our connections to other people you know part of the problem in all of this is that that both salvation and damnation are pictured as if it applies to only individual souls. Mm -hmm. Which again is a skewing of the New Testament that is continually talking about being incorporated into the body of Christ. It's a corporate picture. It's not that as isolated souls were going to heaven or hell, but it is that we're being incorporated into the body of Christ, into the life of God, and to be left outside of that, to be excluded from that, well, that's already the suffering and pain and punishment. What is there outside of God? You can do a kind of uh, mental experiment that in him we live and move and have our being, that he sustains all things. Should he stop sustaining things, what happens to them? They disappear. There is no, there's nothing. And so there's nothing outside of God's sustaining love. If you're going to picture this place, you have to have God actively involved in sustaining, torturing uh, forever and ever. Right. You know, you're talking about the Calvinist uh, understanding of arbitrary selection. Um, and it makes me think, you know, the new Marvel movie came out. And so I'm not thinking of the new one, the end game, but Infinity War where Thanos, which is funny, his name is Thanos, you know. Yeah, good um, name. Yeah, that, that's a fitting name. And the, his whole objective is to wipe out arbitrarily half of creation and he that all suffering will be um, solved by it. And in this movie, you know, there's the scarcity of there's not enough for everybody, so we have to get rid of half of people and it's just arbitrary, so it's fair. And, you know, the whole movie he's saying it's going to be so much better and once... I, I'm going to solve all the world's or all of Earth's problems by doing this very thing. And it's not too far from Christianity, not just Calvinism, but our Western evangelical Protestant 
I don't know, that's not the same thing. But the Christianity, at least, that I have been exposed to, where, of course, whenever you're in this worldview, whenever I was in this worldview, I would have never said it's arbitrary who's in and who's out. But that's exactly what my whole worldview was, is that it is arbitrary. And I remember getting in fights with Calvinists about this, saying that, oh, no, 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 who's in and who's out is not arbitrary. Like, we get to choose God, but... At the end of the day, it is arbitrary because if you think of the world as a whole, there's only so many who fit this weird particular image of what we call, you know, air quotes, a Christian and who is in. Mm -hmm. Yet we don't even live up to the standard. And somehow we're in and somehow these other people who might look just a little bit different than us, they're not. Yeah. And it is arbitrary. And then how's our, all of our problems, how's all of our suffering going to be solved? The snap of the fingers. Half of the people are gone. And half of the people are descended into hell. You know, in a Calvinist system, it's just overtly cruel that God chooses some vessels for wrath and he chooses some vessels for redemption. And there's, it's completely arbitrary. But in fact, if you happen to be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of redemption, it makes no difference to as to what you're, you didn't do that. God arbitrarily chose you. Okay, let's say it's your free will, but what, do we have freedom apart from Christ? I mean, isn't that the story in the, in the Bible, that no true freedom is one that's given to us only in Christ, that otherwise we in some way are slaves to sin? And I think we can, we can see that, that all of us are a product of a particular circumstance. We've all been born in particular cultures, particular families. And in the movie, it's less brutal because the people just disappear. In our worldview, the people don't disappear. They suffer forever. That's a lot, I don't know, that's a lot more intense. <laughs> yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, uh, we were in Japan for 20 years. If you happen to be born Japanese, your odds are very poor for becoming a Christian. Right. Just by the luck of the draw, you're, if you miss out on being a Western, a wasp. Well, you explain what wasp is because I just learned that literally yesterday. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Right. Probably the, in that worldview, that would be the, the uh, majority population in heaven. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's just completely dismissing culture in and of itself. Yeah. Calvin goes all the way with this, and Pascal. The, Pascal says that only in light of a belief in eternal torment of babies who die before reaching the baptismal font can you believe in the excellence of the light of who God is. Calvin says that hell is populated with infants not a cubit long. Tertullian speaks of the saved relishing the delightful spectacle of the destruction of the reprobate. Peter Lombard, Thomas Aquinas, they assert that the vision of the torments of the damned will increase the beatitude of the redeemed. Yeah, which is that exact thing we were talking about with the prodigal son, that mentality of there's not enough for everyone. And that kind of love is just terrible. And you know, what you've experienced and what a lot of people probably who tune in and listen to the podcast and read your posts and all that is we've experienced that kind of love from people, a love that 
enjoys suffering, enjoys exclusion. So, like, if you begin to think differently or live differently, then all of a sudden your friends start dropping like flies. And I'm sure many people listening can relate to that, where, you know, you no longer are evangelical or you begin to affirm women in ministry or affirm LGBTQIA or affirm, you know, whatever it might be. And people start looking at you weird. They no longer talk to you. They start gossiping about you and, you know, creating a distance where you thought, whoa, I thought our friendship, our relationship, our, um, but even family will do this where I thought that was unconditional, but yet I've changed this small aspect of what I think. Mm-hmm. I'm still the same person. I still have the same personality, just expressed perhaps a little bit different. And now I'm unlovable. So the love was never even there. Yeah. Paul talks, he actually repeats it four times. The same phrase that you can identify a kind of perverse Christianity. That shall we sin that grace may abound. It may sound strange to people. What you're describing is there is an understanding that imagines that evil or, or hurting or violence or Uh, in some way being unloving, is a temporary necessity in order to bring about the greater good. Right. That's just just the human condition. People imagine, well, you can't love everybody. You can't. That would just be impractical. I mean, are we going to love those foreigners? Right. (laughs) Which people never actually say that. No, no. They would never say that. Rather, they just tokenize them and treat them terrible and... You know, not even terrible, but just belittling and... Love becomes something different. It right. doesn't It doesn't become... It's a power game. Yeah. That, that's sort of the original point, that the, the vocabulary of, of the religion of Christianity gets emptied of any, any meaning. And, of course, what you're saying throughout is the ethics, that ethics is no longer attached to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I, I just think this doctrine skews people's commitment if the focus is on a future salvation and condemnation then that in some way undoes jesus picture in the sermon on the mount the sermon on the plain no the way that you're the the focus of salvation is a present tense entry into the kingdom of god following jesus it's not something we're simply wait waiting upon but i think with this doctrine that sort of discussion gets uh, almost, uh, it's secondary, or it's in some way not, not central. I have a, a quote here from uh, David Bentley Hart. Compared to that unspeakable offering, that interminable and abominable oblation of infinite misery, what would the cross of Christ be, and what would the mystery of God becoming man in order to affect a merely partial rescue of created order be, as compared to the far deeper mystery of a worthless man becoming the suffering God upon whose perpetual holocaust the entire order of creation finally depends. What he's describing here is that in a predestination, if you're you know, thinking here of the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy, the experience of grace, in a sense, it, you only have that because there were others who balanced out the equation 
by enduring wrath. Aren't those who absorb the wrath of God sort of your surrogate redeemer? I mean, that's what's being pictured in Luther, Calvin, Lombard. They're all saying, oh, well, we our redemption depends upon the uh, torture and the beatific vision and is inclusive of torture forever because, in a sense, your salvation is directly dependent on being balanced out by this wrath. Which is why you can look down from heaven and smile whenever your loved ones are suffering. That in some way that's the assurance. That, right. Yeah. What Hart is saying, that this skews Christ's redemption on the cross, that actually your Redeemer are those who, who suffer forever and ever rather than you. They're, they're receiving the punishment that you didn't receive. It's morally unintelligible. It's just, uh, it skews who God is. It skews the whole understanding of Christianity. It's not biblical. It's, it's not moral. The, the entire thing is baffling. It's such an overwhelming picture. And that just doesn't line up with our lived experience once you've stepped into a life of grace and joy, laughter, a life filled with the gifts of the Spirit, which, like we've talked about, the gifts of the Spirit, they can't be experienced isolated. The gifts of the Spirit are, the gift of the Spirit is things we give unto others and the things we receive. The fruits of the Spirit. It's the wholeness that comes from community. I, yeah, the love of God. Once you once you experience and recognize the love of God, is, you have to have a picture of God that is loving. And I don't know how you can do that if you really think God is hateful. Right. Thank you, Sharon. Wonderful conversation. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.